Good morning. Thank you, ladies. Love that song. Perfect song for today's passage. And I wanted to just start today by asking you all a question. Can you be fickle? Are you ever fickle? Because this week we have seen the fickleness of the crowd, which was following Jesus. And today we're going to see where that is going to lead them. Now, I've discovered over the course of my studies, I can be a bit fickle. I'm not, I don't usually think of myself in those terms, but I can be, especially with regard to who my favorite apostle is. There have been times that I just love Paul. I can't get enough of him because he is so bold and he is so fearless. He is unwavering in his commitment to doctrinal truth, is he not? Then, then there are those times I'm just completely drawn to Peter because he's so relatable to me. And he is real. He has these wild emotional outbursts. And then he's also so bold. And we see him grow in his um, vulnerability and his likeness to Christ. But right now, Right now, I got to say, I'm loving John. Are you too? (laughs) There is just something about him that's pulling me in. His love for, his reverence for, and his knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ has truly been inspiring. When he identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he does it five times in the Gospel of John, I find myself wanting that for myself. Do you? But I know, I know that this kind of relationship does not grow in a vacuum. John needed to know Jesus. He needed to spend time at his feet to watch him as he taught, as he healed, as he rebuked, as he cared for the people. He needed to see just how much the Lord loved the Father and always did the Father's will. John needed to understand that Jesus was much more than just his friend. He was his Lord. He was his Savior, and he was the very reason that John existed. He was the bread who sustained him, the lamb who was sent by God to save him. John had to learn that Jesus was always and would always be. He had to be convinced, ladies, that Jesus is God. He was certain, he was certain that he loved Jesus, but what was really incredible to him, I think, was that Jesus loved him. The book of John shows us all of this and so much more because it's about Jesus, the great I am, who loves us. So please, today, take note of our outline because our flow today is going to be a little different. It's by subject rather than by verse. So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6, and together we're going to learn more about Jesus, who is the source and the sustainer of life. And when we understand that there is nowhere else to go for eternal life, it's then that we too might be able to describe ourselves as the women who Jesus loves. So open to chapter 6, and we are in verse 26. And we pick up this week 
The morning after, remember Jesus had fed the 20,000 people and he had walked on the water and the crowds have followed him. They want healing. They want freedom from the Roman rule and they actually still want a new king. And all of this, all of this is to satisfy themselves, their own selfish desires. There is no fear of the Lord in them, only a desire for selfish fulfillment. So read along with me in verse 26, where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus then goes on to tell them that they're working hard for the wrong things. And they really have worked hard to follow Jesus, haven't they? They chased him for miles and miles, eight miles. And now they're here again, searching for Jesus, the one who would feed them. They're working for extremely temporary pleasures, food. There's not a whole lot more temporary than that. And Jesus instead tells them to work for the food which endures to eternal life which, he says, the Son of Man will give to them. In fact, they can count on it because verse 27 tells us that God has sealed it. Now, in those days, a seal on an official document would authenticate that the person delivering it was indeed sent by the king and that the message was directly from the king. So the food that Jesus is offering will result in eternal life. God sent his son for this purpose, and he has sealed it. He has authenticated this promise through Jesus Christ. So, wow, they're intrigued now. He has their attention in verse 29. They say, what should we do so that we may work the works of God? Well, you know, isn't that always the weak spot for us humans Just give me a list of things to do. Give me some rules to follow. Just tell me what to do so I can have that life. I can have that job, that marriage, those relationships, or that relationship, or those children. How about the ministry? Just give me a list. I'll do it so I can get what I want. But Jesus told them that this is not earned. It is a gift. In fact, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Work cannot gain this gift. But it does require something. It requires belief. Jesus tells them in verse 29 that the work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. Ladies, this is the work of every true believer in Jesus Christ. Our work is to stop working and to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has done everything for you. He is sufficient. He he alone is essential for eternal life. And through him, we have eternal life. Have faith in this because this is the work of a believer. And there's more. Even this faith is a work of God. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You can't do anything, but you must believe. And John uses the word believe over 100 times in this gospel. 
Now, this was the exact opposite of what the Jews believed because they believed that by doing good things, that's what made them good. And God's blessing was always on the good people. But the truth, ladies, is that the work of faith is the work of God. You don't do anything. Does this make you grateful for his gift to you? Does it make you pray that perhaps he might give this gift to your family members? Those people, those friends and family members, those loved ones that you're praying for. Or maybe you find yourself here this morning praying that for yourself. But these were not the realities that were on the minds of this crowd. Just as Jesus has already pointed out, they're there for food. They are not concerned about spiritual things or eternal things. They're blinded by what they currently want. So in verse 30, they try a different approach. What do you do then for a sign that we may see and believe in you? What work will you perform? Are you serious? I mean, really, they are there because they have seen the signs. They believed that he did the signs because they witnessed the signs. He has healed. He's done miracles. And less than 24 hours before, he's fed thousands, many of them. Jesus has been authenticated by his father over and over and over again, but they want more. They want the Lord to perform for them to give them what they most wanted. And at that particular moment, it was food. So in verse 31, they bring up the manna in the wilderness. After all, they say, the Israelites were provided bread from heaven, just like the morning dew for 40 years. So let's see what you can do, Jesus. These men did know their scripture, but what they chose not to bring up was the prophet Hosea, who said in chapter 14, verse 5, that a day was coming when God would pour out his spirit on Israel and that I will be as the dew unto Israel. Well, bread has always played a crucial role in the life of every single human being. In Genesis 3.19, we see that after Adam and Eve sinned, God's curse on Adam was that obtaining bread from that point on would be toil. It would be very hard work. And then again in Exodus 16, when the people grumbled in the wilderness, God responded to them by telling them that he would rain bread from heaven. This is what the people were referencing. And this was to be, though, a reminder that every single day in the wilderness, it was Yahweh Yahweh alone who provided them, provided for them and sustained them. Bread, again, is emphasized in Exodus 25, 35, and 39, when we see that every week, 12 loaves of freshly baked bread was placed on a table in the holy place within the tabernacle. This bread is called the bread of the presence. And it was to remind each of those 12 tribes that God was present with them. The bread from heaven reveals the glory of God because Moses had told them that in Exodus 16, 7. He said, and in the morning, you will see the glory of Yahweh. 
So now here's Jesus, the glory of God in human flesh, standing right in front of them, just as was proclaimed in John 1.14. But in verses 32 and 33, Jesus tells them, Moses did not give the manna from heaven. God did. And now God is offering them more than just temporal bread. He's giving true bread, true bread from heaven. So they say, Lord, give us always this bread. And this request really betrays their heart. They just want to eat and they don't want to ever work for it. In verse 35, Jesus says as plainly as he can, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But they couldn't see the glory of God because they were so focused on themselves, on their own needs, and even on their own glory. So Jesus tells them and us something very personal and something very glorious about himself. He tells them and us his name. In verse 35, Jesus begins with his name, I am. And this would have meant something to these Jewish people. Because remember, in Exodus 3, God drew Moses to the burning bush, and he said, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses was afraid to look at God. And then when Moses told, or when God told Moses to ask Pharaoh, remember this story, to let the people go, Moses asked, well, who should I say has sent me? Because they're going to ask your name, so what should I tell them? And in Exodus 3.14, God responds by saying, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. His name is forever, from generation to generation. This, ladies, is the proper and personal name of God. He is a person. He has a name, and he wants us to know things about him through his name. In Isaiah 41.4, God gave his prophet Isaiah courage and strength just by revealing his name. He said he's the first, he's the last. I am he, he said to Isaiah. Now, in the Hebrew language, I am is the verb Y-H-W-H. It is from four Hebrew consonants, and it means to be or to exist. This name was so revered by the Jews that they couldn't say it or even write it down. Vowels have since been added to make it more readable or sayable for us. And we say Yahweh or Yehovah or even Jehovah. But I am is pre-existent. That means he always was and he always will be. Ecclesiastes 3.11 promises us that. I am is self-existent. He exists because he is God. Romans 4.17 tells us that. I am is immutable, which means he is unchangeable. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Yahweh is most often regarded as God the Father, but it applies to the Trinity. God the Father is a person. Jesus Christ the Son is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. 
They're three persons, yet they're one. And as Ruth taught us a couple of weeks ago, God is one, but not one-dimensional. God has given us everything we need to know about him in Scripture. He explains himself in terms that we can understand. They call that anthropomorphic. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself. In the Gospel of John, he describes himself with seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. But in chapter 6, we get to look at I am the bread of life. And what a great metaphor this is. Because Jesus is going to masterfully take the name of God, I am, and apply a metaphor to it to explain something about who he is and what he does. He's going to clarify that he didn't just come to do miracles, which did prove his deity, but his purpose in coming was to save mankind from sin. And Jesus states his purpose all over this chapter in verses 32, 33, 38, 39, 40, and 57. But in 59, if you look at 59, I told you we're hopping all over today. It informs us in that verse that they have now moved to the synagogue. And it is there that Jesus gives this sermon to the Jews. And his sermon begins with this very bold statement in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Every culture, every nation has its own version of bread. From pita to German stolen, from rice to noodles, Panettone to baguettes, conchas to cornbread. Bread is a staple. It's a staple around the whole world. We need it. We want it. We enjoy it and work hard to provide it. Bread is a staple food in any well-rounded diet, in every culture, and at every time in history. And Jesus brilliantly uses this analogy that every person in any culture at any time would understand. Because there are spiritual truths that are found in physical bread. Bread, we know, is necessary to live. And Jesus, likewise, is necessary to have life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Bread must be eaten to do any good. And Jesus, likewise, has to be internalized. We call that abiding in Christ. 1 John 4, 13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. You eat bread. Why? Because you're hungry, right? And you internalize Jesus Christ, the word, because you're hungry for him. Jeremiah 15, 16 is one of my favorites. It says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. You are what you eat. Well, this expression comes from a French lawyer back in 1826, and what he actually says was, tell me what you eat, and I'll tell you what you are. Food becomes part of the person who eats it. We know that's true, but 
by belief in Jesus Christ, we become one with Christ. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Eating bread is a personal act. No one can eat for you. But with Christ, you must be born again. No one can do that for you. Psalm 49, 7 says, Truly no man can redeem his brother. He cannot give to God a ransom for him. And just as we have to feed on physical food to survive and to thrive in this life, so we must feed on Jesus Christ to live and to live life abundantly. John 10.10 says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The world, ladies, is starving. They're starving for spiritual food. And just as we will sometimes feed our bodies with things that won't sustain us, like perhaps that big pile of Halloween candy that you may or may not have eaten recently, um, we also often try to feed on the things that can't satisfy our greatest spiritual needs. This is just as true today as it was back then, because many still seek Jesus for material gain and temporary satisfaction. Very few pastors in our day will do what Jesus did in this passage, and that's to tell the truth about the gospel. And sadly, many are left with a deep, deep hunger that will never subside without Jesus Christ. Yes, he does care about our physical needs, and he's shown us that again and again in the Gospel of John. But that is not the message of the Gospel. Verse 33 says that just as bread is essential to our physical life, Jesus is essential to our spiritual life. He is the bread who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, seven times in this passage, Jesus repeats that he is the bread that came down from heaven. He was sent from heaven, not from Bethlehem. Jesus, the true bread, is preexistent. He wasn't created. He always was, and he always is. He was sent by his Father for a purpose. And this really makes these Jews grumble. They were muttering. They were whispering amongst themselves. They were angry because he was claiming to be equal with, with God. And I think just as offensive to them, he was claiming to be more than them. He wasn't like them. He wasn't like every other Galilean out there. He came down from heaven. He claimed to be the source of eternal life, and this made them mad. So Jesus tells them in verse 43, stop grumbling because he sees their hearts and he hears their unbelief. Their murmuring is really only a reflection of the rebelliousness that's in their hearts because murmuring and grumbling is always a reflection of the rebelliousness in the heart of the grumbler. Scripture tells us that when we grumble about anything, we're really grumbling against God. Exodus 16, 7 and Numbers 16, 11 confirm that. He sees our hearts and he hears every little murmur within it. 
all of those internal complaints, you know, that we think we're hiding so well from other people, but they're on full display for our Lord to see and to hear. But these people were grumbling, and they were hardening their hearts to the truth. Hebrews actually addresses this sad reality in Hebrews 3, 15 through 19. Listen to this. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not allow to enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter his rest because of their unbelief. Ladies, Jesus came to be life, not to just provide bread. Jesus really wants us to get this. God is generous. He blesses with abundance, but he wants us to seek him because he is the divine son of God who was sent by the Father to give eternal life. Seeking Jesus for selfish desires can actually harden our hearts so that the truth won't penetrate into them. And every time Jesus says that he was sent from heaven, their cold, hard hearts got just a little bit harder. The Jews heard what Jesus was teaching, and they didn't like it. So they said to him in verse 42, we know you. We know your parents. You didn't come from heaven. You came from Bethlehem. Well, Jesus, by the way, did come from Bethlehem, just as prophesied in Micah 5.2, which they should have known. But get this, in Hebrew, Bethlehem means house of bread. Every single detail in scripture is inspired and is important. Bethlehem was just the point of entry for the pre-existent son of God. He is the eternal bread from heaven sent by the Father for a purpose. And the purpose of his coming is repeated. Verse 33, 38, 41, 42, 46, 50, 51, and 58. He came for a purpose. So instead of addressing their attacks, Jesus actually doubles down. He didn't soften his message Just because they were angry, he made it as clear as he could because it is indeed a matter of life and death. The word life in one form or another is all over chapter 6. Someday just go through and underline them all. But look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, remember that means, listen up, you'd better get this. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, ladies, we know that this is a metaphor because Jesus has just been speaking metaphorically about bread. Just as Jesus is not a loaf of bread, he's not advocating cannibalism. He's talking about abiding in him. 
this is the only source of life, Jesus Christ. He's using a metaphor to encourage these people to appropriate him by faith. But the Jews, ladies, are not the only people in church history who have misinterpreted this passage because the Roman Catholic Church has taken this statement and applied it to the Eucharist or what we would call communion. They believe that the elements of the consecrated blood and wine are converted into the actual substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is not taught anywhere in scripture. Jesus' teaching on the bread and the cup won't even come for another year because he taught that on the night before he was crucified. So this passage is clearly not referencing or referring to the Lord's table. It is, though, giving us a descriptive insight into who Jesus is and his purpose in coming. Jesus was, in fact, teaching them something very important. He was prophetically proclaiming what was going to be. The bread represents the flesh of Jesus, which he would voluntarily give for the life of the world in John 1.14. It represents that he would sacrifice his body or his life in exchange for the lives of sinners. And we call this the great exchange. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Matthew 20, Galatians 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, Titus 2, Galatians 3, 1 Peter 2. I mean, you can go on and on and find it everywhere. The body of Christ, his flesh, was the price of our redemption because the wages of sin is death. We know that from Romans 6.23. But God... But God accepted the flesh of his own son instead of ours. And our debt was paid in full. Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, 2, and 4.10 will explain that. This, ladies, is what must be believed. But the unbelief of this crowd demonstrates the next truth in Jesus' sermon, that no amount of religion which they were religious, no amount of knowledge, which they had a knowledge, and no good deeds will ever result in eternal life. Because we've already seen that the first truth is that Jesus is God, and he is the great I am. The second truth we've seen is that Jesus is the bread, which must be believed and consumed for eternal life. And now we get to see another really great truth, that we are all unable to come to Jesus on our own because of the depth of our own sin. In fact, we don't even want to come to Jesus because of the depth of our sin, but it is the Father's will to save. Look back with me for a second at verses 37 through 39, and I'm going to read these verses. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Okay, wow. Can we just contemplate what this little passage is telling us? It all begins with God's will. It's God's will that he sent his own son 
to pay the penalty for our sins. It is God's will that every single person that God gives to his son will be held and will be secured by Christ himself. It is God's will that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will raise up every single person whom the Father has given to him. The will of God is the driving force in all of this. It's God's will, ladies, that Jesus never loses his grip on us. Jesus himself preserves us so that we can persevere until we're in his presence. If God's will is to save, to secure, and to raise, let me ask you, why would any believer ever be hesitant to pray for God's will in their life or in the lives of others? Well, we know the answer to that because humans sometimes fear God's will, don't we? But ladies, how could our own will ever be greater than what we've just learned is God's will for us? So the next truth that we're going to encounter can be a little bit difficult for us to grasp. And that that is that God's will is to draw some to himself. It is impossible for one to come to Jesus unless the Father draws her. Scripture is clear. We see it in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 39. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 65. For this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Okay, this had to have been a salve to the aching heart of Jesus because he had such enormous love and compassion for the people. He was gentle, he was kind, he was compassionate. The rejection of the Messiah would have eternal consequences. Yet, the drawing, the choosing, the election of those who would come to him was all in the will of his father. And Jesus always lovingly placed himself under the will of his father. Philippians 2, 6, 8 tells us exactly that. It says, he emptied himself, took the form of a slave in the likeness of men, humbled himself, and died on a cross, obedient to his father to the point of death. We also can apply this same salve to our own aching hearts when the people whom we love reject the Savior. Jesus, who is our example, was always content with and intent on doing the will of his Father. But wait, I know what you're thinking, some of you. Isn't it also the Father's will that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and that Jesus himself will raise him up on the last day? That's in verse 40. And isn't the purpose of the Gospel of John to call us to believe That's in our key verse, for heaven's sakes, in John 20, 31. And most of us in this room can quote John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We can't forget Romans 10, 9 because it promises that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So which is it? 
Jesus seems to move seamlessly between these two doctrinal truths. These, ladies, are what our pastor, John MacArthur, calls the twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We must be drawn by God, and we must believe. Let me give you just a couple of examples from Scripture. First, uh, about God's sovereignty, and then about man's responsibility. So if you have your Bibles open, turn it over to Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, because Jesus is going to state these parallel truths right next to each other. Start in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone, get this, to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then you see the responsibility in the very next verse, verses 28 and 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Ephesians 1, 2 talks about the sovereignty again, just as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Our responsibility is in Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. Ladies, some people really get hung up on these two doctrinal truths. They feel they have to kind of harmonize them, but the reality is they're parallel realities. They're never going to touch. And what's more, they're not explained in Scripture. So how do we reconcile these truths? How can we be content in believing both of these are true, even when we cannot grasp how They can both be true. Well, strangely, God has used my husband's profession to help me with this. Because, as you know, he's a rocket scientist. And he designs engines that lift rockets and propel them way out into outer space. And on those very rare occasions when I've asked him to explain to me exactly how everything works together in the engine, he begins to explain And I begin to glaze over (laughs) because two things are happening here. I don't have the need to know, and I don't have the capacity to understand. I did not go to school to learn engineering, and I did not build that rocket. A launch also is not dependent upon whether or not I understand how it works. All of us have learned to embrace and fully enjoy some things that we just do not understand. And there are some things in Scripture that we cannot reconcile because we don't have the need to know and we do not have the capacity to understand. Yet, when we trust God with them, we can blissfully enjoy his plan and his purpose. And John 6 is just like this because Jesus... Jesus clearly states that he is the bread of life and that he who comes to him will never hunger and he who believes in him will never thirst. But then he goes right back into, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. There's a divine side, and there's a human side. And Scripture moves back and forth between these two realities seamlessly because to God, there's no problem. And I wonder sometimes if the Apostle Paul had a sense of this when he wrote Romans eleven thirty three and 34. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? And I really love Psalm 77, verse 19. It says, your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, but your footprints were not known. Ladies, some of us need to stop looking for God's footprints in water, and we need to be content to believe what he has written in his word. One who is drawn and comes to Christ in belief comes to understand that she was chosen before the foundation of the world. And these truths offer us so much hope, even if we don't understand how they work together. Because Jesus only does his Father's will, remember that? And what is his Father's will back in John 6 again? Well, eternal security. That's our hope. Verse 37 says, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39 says, all that he has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it up. Verse 40, that I myself will raise him up on the last day. And 58, he who eats this bread will live forever. Our eternal security depends wholly on Christ. And I, for one, am very grateful for that. Romans 8, 39 says, nothing can separate us from his love. And this is such an important truth. We enter the kingdom of God because of Christ, and we remain in the kingdom of God because of Christ. Ladies, you can trust that since you did not do anything to be born again, you certainly cannot do anything to be unborn. So what happens now at the end of this chapter is going to sadly reinforce this truth. That huge crowd, that huge crowd which had followed Jesus just so that they could get something from him, they refused to believe in him, and they stopped following Jesus. John Piper says this of these people, they were excited about bread as their pleasure, but not Christ as their treasure. Jesus has boldly claimed that he is the only source of life, and just as much as bread is essential, he is essential. But you can't work for him the way you work for the things in this life. It's a free gift of God. You just believe. You would think this would be good news. And they would have been excited about this because this is great news. But instead, they grumbled. They were argued with each other. They said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this in verse 60? These words really irked them. They were very hard sayings. People were offended to hear that Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. But Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. They were offended that those who believe in Christ abide in Christ, 
But 1 John 4, 13 says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. They were offended that the father draws, but it is the father's will to grant salvation to some and not to others. That was offensive to them. These realities were hard for the people then, and you know what? They're still hard for people now. So Jesus' question applies to each one of us here. In 61, he says, does this cause you to stumble? The words I have spoken are spirit and their life. In other words, God speaks through his word, and he gives understanding and life through his spirit. The crowd didn't have the spirit of God. They couldn't and they wouldn't understand. They did not believe. They didn't believe his words and they had no understanding from his spirit. And these fickle followers of Jesus left. They left not for lack of information, not for lack of proof or knowledge. They left because they did not believe. When people follow Christ for personal gain, They do not persevere. So, to the 12 who remained, Jesus asked, do you also want to go? Well, Jesus knew that even though there were 12, only 12 out of thousands remaining, one of them was not a true follower. Jesus did not believe the belief of Judas. Judas Iscariot was the one to whom the word betrayer will always be associated with his name in every single account of his life. So I want you to think about your own life as Peter answers his own question in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, chapter 6 has been great. It's Jesus' wrap-up to his Galilean ministry, The teachings in this chapter are a portrait of the gospel. God the Father, the great I am, who is the pre-existent, self-existent, creator creator of all, has authority over all, and therefore has the power and the authority to save whomever he chooses. People whom God created do rebel against him. We call that sin, And God's authority has been rejected and has left us and the world that we live in sick and spiraling towards death, both physically and spiritually. And this leaves people hopeless and hungry for something more. The Father, in his great love for us, sent his own Son to take on the full punishment that our sin deserves. His Son, Jesus, came humbly but lived perfectly. And when the time was right, he began to teach of God's kingdom and the sin which keeps every person out of his kingdom. He proved that he is the great I am sent by the Father to save the world, and the signs pointing to him were everywhere. He offered eternal bread, which was his flesh, through which we appropriate his righteousness and life through his spirit. And his blood, this is the blood of Jesus who he sacrificed for us and is able to cover every single sin. 
that we commit. But our response, we have learned in this chapter, is crucial. This chapter demonstrates to us that those who respond to Jesus selfishly, that those who only follow him for what they can get from him are false followers, and they will not persevere to eternal life. We learn that there are others like Judas who are just flat-out liars. They're hypocrites and the rejecters of Christ. They are the betrayers of the Savior who offers life. But, but there are true followers. Those of us who recognize our need for a Savior and respond in faith, repenting of our sin and believing that Jesus alone is the only hope of our salvation, both from the cruelties of this broken and sick world and from the punishment which awaits all of fallen humanity. These hesitant followers had moved to being hostile, and this would very soon result in their murderous hatred. The disciples would be prepared to boldly proclaim the gospel, confident that they have eternal life through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, who would sustain them so that they could persevere until they too were called into his presence. Where else could they go? Only Jesus had the words of eternal life. John believed this. John saw the great I am, and he believed. He came to know that Jesus is God, the source of life and the sustainer of life, and that there is nowhere else to go to find eternal life. And that, ladies, is why the only way he would describe himself in this gospel is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because to be loved by the great I am was more than he could desire and more than he could have ever imagined. So, after studying John 6, can you proclaim with Peter and the other 10 disciples in that room that you have believed and have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Are you known for being a woman who loves Christ? But even more, are you astounded that this Jesus, this great I Am, the bread of life, would love you? Do you, along with me, now want to be forever known as the woman who Jesus loves? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your gospel. I thank you for sending your son. We praise you and give you all the glory. Lord, I just pray that if there is anyone here whose heart has been hardened, that you will open their eyes to truth and that you on this day might save them, that you will feed them with your words that are truth. Let your spirit open their hearts and open their minds to this truth and save. We thank you that you are the one who loves us so much. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.